Quite often in teaching my high school religion classes, I would use a form of role-playing or simulation to invite the students into a real experience of a character or group of people. In the social justice class, I often began with an exercise that gave students the opportunity to get inside the skin of a marginalized person. Several volunteers were invited to leave the room while I had a brief discussion with the rest of the class. While these brave souls were outside, I explained the plan to the others. We were going to invite the volunteers back in the classroom and ask them to sit in the back of the room, away from the rest of the group. We would then continue the class ignoring them and not responding to them in any way. The idea was to simulate the experience of marginalized people in our world today. For the most part, because they are seen to be too poor or too feeble or too sick, they are kept out of discussions and any participation in the daily life around them. Needless to say, the volunteers and many of those who had stayed in the classroom were horrified at such inhospitable treatment. But in the debriefing afterwards, we all agreed that there are many instances in our culture where certain groups of people are marginalized, kept on the fringe of our society. At various times in my life since those high school teaching days, I've been reminded of the experience of marginalization. I experienced it while visiting the shops in Nuevo Laredo in Mexico, where women and children sold homemade crafts in small, very cold stalls. I saw it in New Orleans when those without money and cars were left in the city while the floodwaters rose. In their pastoral letter, Economic Justice for All, the bishops of the United States addressed the situation of the powerless and marginalized in these words. The ultimate injustice is for a person or a group to be treated actively or abandoned passively as if they were non-members of the human race. To treat people this way is effectively to say that they simply do not count as human beings. In Jesus' time, such people were known as the Anawim, or the poor of Israel. These are the people whom God promises to raise up and with whom he plans to do a new thing. This new thing has been promised to Israel. See, I am doing something new. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Through his gospel, Luke helps us to see the fulfillment of the prophecy as he introduces us to the poor ones, the Anuim, who are open to hearing the word of God and acting on it. Who were the Anawim of the second chapter of Luke's gospel? We begin with Mary and Joseph, members of the peasant class, who were self-sustaining, raising their own food and providing necessary carpentry skills to their village. Elizabeth Johnson writes of them, it is not a great stretch of the imagination to see Mary and Joseph as transients, equivalent to the homeless of contemporary city streets, people who lack adequate shelter, or as marginalized persons pushed to the edge, like squatters living in the shanty towns of many big cities of the third world. In this setting, Mary, a young woman in a patriarchal society, brought her child into the world in the manner of enormously disadvantaged people. Without the security of a home, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, the traditional Palestinian way of securing a newborn 
and laid him in a manger. Though used by Luke to connect with the powerful image of David, the shepherd king of Israel, the reputation of the shepherd in Israel was not a favorable one. The shepherds, too, were part of the Anuim. Richard Rohr describes them as often being seen as outside the system and outside the law. They're associated, he says, with bandits, nonconformists, boorish and dirty folk. Through the shepherds, Luke is reminding his readers that it was to the marginalized, the people of no regard, that the good news was first announced. Perhaps, too, we might include the prophetess Anna in our list of the Anuim. Though we are not sure of her financial status, we do know that she is a woman and a widow, folks who are typically considered outside of any power center in Jerusalem. So we see that the birth of Jesus occurred amongst the poor of Israel. All of this happened through the prodding and initiative of the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel is often called the gospel of the Holy Spirit, for it is Luke's intent here and later in the Acts of the Apostles to show the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, as well as in the lives of the disciples. The Spirit plays an active role in Mary's pregnancy, in her visit to Elizabeth, and certainly in Jesus' birth. The Spirit is akin to the life-giving power of God that was responsible for the creation of the world, the restoration of life to the dry bones spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel. This poem of Jessica Powers speaks of what it is like to be guided by the Spirit. To live with the Spirit of God is to be a listener. It is to keep the vigil of mystery earthless and still. One leans to catch the stirring of the Spirit, strange as the winds will. The soul that walks where the wind of the Spirit blows turns like a wandering weather vane toward love. It may lament like Job or Jeremiah, echo the wounded heart, the mateless dove. It may rejoice in spaciousness of, of meadow that emulates the freedom of the sky. Always it walks in waylessness, unknowing. It is cast down forever from its hand, the compass of the wither and the why. To live with the Spirit of God is to be a lover. It is becoming love and like to him toward whom we strain, with metaphors of creatures, fire sweep and water rush and the wind's whim. The soul is all activity, all silence, and though it surges Godward to its goal, it holds as moving earth holds sleeping noonday, the peace that is the listening of the soul. It is the outpouring of the Spirit that has been promised to Mary and her descendants. The Spirit will guide Mary and Joseph in their rearing of Jesus. The Spirit will guide Jesus as he begins his ministry. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Spirit will be the nurturing force in the development of the early church. Specifically, in this second chapter, the Spirit revealed Jesus to Simeon on the occasion of Jesus' presentation in the temple. Simeon had long waited for the consolation of Israel. This day he was guided by the Spirit to come to the temple and then to meet the young child who would be a revealing light to the Gentiles as well as to the Israelites. Only two personalities from this chapter of Luke are mentioned in the rest of his gospel, Jesus and Mary. 
Both were empowered by the Spirit. Mary would become the first of all the disciples of Jesus. She would be one among many who listened to the word of God, her son, and kept it. But there were also many who would not or could not respond. These varieties of responses were compared later in Luke's gospel to the seed that fell on different kinds of soil. Some fell on rocky ground and among thorns and grew hardly at all, but other seed fell on good soil and produced a hundredfold. Jesus, in just a few verses later, will say of Mary, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and act on it. For many people, life just seems to happen. Each day they start anew, continuing on without taking time to consider and reflect on what happened the day before. Mary was not that way. Even as a young teenager, Mary kept all these things, all these events that occurred in her life, reflecting on them in her heart. Other translations describe her as pondering them in her heart. That word appeals to me. It speaks to me of deep thinking and of weighing issues. The image I have is of that famous statue by Auguste Rodin of the thinker. Mary, though, was not just thinking. She was reflecting on her life, her life experience in the light of what she was learning from her son. Edwina Gately gives us some sense of the issues Mary may have pondered in these lines excerpted from her poem. What did you know, Mary, except girlish vulnerability and a gut awareness of your life whirling out of control? Did the words, do not be afraid, soothe your apprehension? Did you grasp onto them desperately, whispering them under your breath again and again? Affirmed, loved, comforted, you stayed with Elizabeth, absorbing the experience of the older woman, deepening in your resolve to nurture, hold, and mother God. And then it was the time for waiting, only waiting as we do for revelation, time to ponder and contemplate the wonder of it all. Drawing on the wisdom and courage Elizabeth had shared with you, you grew into motherhood. You harbored and nurtured the life which would forever change world history. You remembered the light you had once seen and the words you had heard stirring in your soul, calling you to an untrod path. Patrick Beersley, a now deceased member of the Society of Mary from New Zealand, described three elements of Mary's prayer life which made her a true disciple. She listened to what God had to say. She took it to heart. She allowed it to have an effect on her life and activity. One way that I have found to listen to what God is saying to me is to make use of a consciousness examine developed from the earlier examination of conscience of St. Ignatius of Loyola. The examine of, of Ignatius involved more of a searching for sin in our lives, while the consciousness examine looks more at feelings and responds to the opening line of Psalm 95. If today you hear God's voice, harden not your hearts. The method of the examine was described in a 1994 America Magazine article written by Jesuit Dennis Hamm. It includes five steps. 
The first step is to pray for light, inviting the Spirit to lead us in what we are about to do. Then we review the day in thanksgiving, reviewing our work, our relationships, meals, challenges. We walk through the day in a spirit of gratitude for all that God has provided us. In the third step, we review the feelings that surface in the replay of the day. Here we look at all of our feelings, the positive and negative, the painful and the pleasing. We pay attention to all that has happened in the last 24 hours. In the fourth step, we choose one feeling, positive or negative, and pray from it. Choose the feeling that most caught your attention. That usually is an indication that something important is going on. In this step, we are encouraged to spontaneously pray the prayer that emerges as we deal with the source of the feeling. It may be a prayer of praise or petition, or a plea for help or healing, or an expression of sorrow. Finally, in the fifth step, we look forward to tomorrow. What feelings emerge as you anticipate the events on your calendar? Fear, delight, self-doubt, temptation to, pro to procrast procrastinate? Turn all of this into prayer for whatever you need, and then conclude with the Lord's Prayer. Mary may not have used this method, which Ham simplifies into a method he calls L. T3F, which stands for light, thanks, feeling, focus, and future. But in her own way, she used the experiences of her life for reflection and planning for her future. In this gospel, Luke presents us with a Christ who will speak a message for all people. At the time of Luke's writing, it was a message of good news for Gentiles as well as Jews. Today, this good news is a message for Christians and non-Christians, even those without any religious conviction. Most importantly, this gospel is addressed to those outside the centers of power, those who are on the fringe of our churches and our society. All can come to Jesus, women as well as men, the sick, the weak, the sinful. God wishes to reverse their situation, this will be done not by force, but with humility, love, mercy, and forgiveness. If this invitation is still being offered today, and we believe it is, who are the people that need to be invited to our churches and communities? Do we have a good sense of who they are? Have we taken to heart that the invitation includes the poor, the suffering, the marginalized? This chapter of Luke's Gospel offers us the promise of God's Spirit in whatever activities we engage in for the sake of the Gospel. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, Simeon, and Anna all knew the story of their religious leaders and the prophecies that had been foretold. Here in this chapter, they relied on the Spirit to give them the knowledge to hear God's invitation and the courage to respond to what was being asked of them. Mary said yes to being the mother of God. Joseph agreed to share in her venture. The shepherds reacted to the surprising announcement of the baby's birth and the direction to go and look for Jesus without hesitation. Simeon and Anna, after living long, faithful lives, encountered the savior of their dreams in the temple. Simeon responded with joyous surrender and Anna by thanking God and proclaiming the gift of the child. 
If we believe the Spirit is still active in our world today, then where is the Spirit inviting me? And what am I being asked to do? Here in chapter 2, Mary is presented as Jesus' first disciple, one of those who will respond positively to the Word of God. Mary provides us with an example of faithful obedience, especially when such obedience leads to suffering and division. The invitation to such discipleship will be present throughout Luke's Gospel, but not all will respond with Mary's generosity. Not all will hear the Word of God and do it. Such discipleship will involve active participation in changing and rearranging the priorities of the world. We will be invited to renounce consumerism, militarism, racism, and finally, as disciples, we will be asked to live lives of loving service to others. Spiritan Father Anthony Gittens writes about discipleship as a disturbing presence of God in our lives. God, he says, is trying ever so gently to disturb me so that God can use me to disturb where disturbance is needed. Each of us has been called to be a disciple. We may not always feel equal to the task, but if we offer God our yes, we too can experience the promise of God's Spirit as we live and proclaim the liberating message of the gospel.